talking about living the extraordinarily blessed life. Colossians 1 and 27, to them God willed to make known what are the riches. Say that word, riches. God is not poor. I want you to hear that. Nor does he treat us like he's poor. He bestows upon us the greatest of treasures, which in this case is a revelation. What are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory? And I've made the point the last couple of weeks that contrary to the traditional interpretation of this verse, which is that Christ in us is our hope of going to heaven, that's not what that verse is actually saying. It's what we've heard because we look at it and we think, well, yeah, that's what it means. But I've pointed out that it's just like LeBron James going back to Cleveland. That LeBron James being with the Cleveland Cavaliers is their hope of winning the, the, the world championship. It's not Cleveland hoping to get back to Cleveland. They're already there. Yet we come to this verse and we, all the normal rules of logic of interpretation we throw out the window because of a preconceived idea that we think this verse is saying something. It's saying that Christ in us is our hope of going to heaven. And as I pointed out, first of all, let me tell you absolutely that that is right. Christ in you is your only hope of salvation. There's no other hope than Christ. It's just that's not what that verse is saying. That verse is actually talking about a revelation that Christ in us is glory's hope for the transformation of this world and the establishing of the kingdom of God. And so I look around and I see so many believers, as, as you have as well, that live blessed lives because you can't connect with God and not be blessed, right? That's what Laban said, and he was a scallywag. He told Joseph, the Lord has blessed me for your sake. And, you know, you ought to just think about that sometime. The very reason your business is blessed. I mean, you're the company you work for. It may be because you walk in the door every Monday. Amen. And I wouldn't mind telling the boss that. You don't know how blessed you are to have me on this job just in case he gets to thinking the wrong kind of things. God's blessing this company because of me. Amen. When you connect with God, you can't help but be blessed. However, there are so many believers that never fulfill their God-given potential and become everything they were meant to be. And that's why this year I've spent a whole year using the theme, living the extraordinarily blessed life. Jesus talked about there were some that were 30 and there were some that were 60 and there were some that were 100 fold. Yet they all received the very same seed of the word of God. They all fell on good ground. It's not the ground that had rocks or thorns or thistles and it wasn't where birds came and devoured the seed. On the good ground where the seed fell, some same seed brought forth 30 fold, some 60 fold, some 100 and that is profoundly captivating to me. Why with the same seed, same soil, same genetic DNA inside the seed, same potential, why are some only a third of what others are? Why do some live so far beneath their privilege, some only two-thirds of where they could be? And I'm captivated by this. And intrigued by this. First of all, I have to tell you, I have a pretty strong ulterior motive for asking the question why. Because I don't want to be one of those that only lives a part of their life and becomes a fraction of what they could have been for God. So I look at this and see believers that are blessed because, as I said, you can't help but be blessed if you connect with God. But then I ask the question why are some so extraordinarily blessed and others, <clears throat> not as much, and others a little bit more. And we all see the same thing happening, don't we? That many times what stops or inhibits the blessing are our own decisions and choices. And we literally 
do things that circumvent our own success. And we have all kinds of phrases that have worked their way into our vernacular and vocabulary. Phrases like, that guy shoots himself in the foot all the time. Or he's his own worst enemy. You ever hear people talk like that? You ever say it about somebody? Amen. We say things like that because we recognize in others what we often fail to see in ourselves. And that is, sometimes we don't just need to be set free from sin. We need to be set free from ourselves too. So I'm in this series on set free from me. And I want to pray, Father, would you cause your incredible word to speak to us right now. And Lord, help us to see who we are, the potential that you have placed within us to identify with that and accept it because we're not who the world says we are or even what the enemy says we are. We are who you say we are. You created us for a purpose. And then help us to be able to self-diagnose, to assess what we need to do to position ourselves to become everything that we could be. We don't want to live our lives at a fraction of the success or fulfillment or happiness or joy that we could have enjoyed, whether that's financial or in our marriages or even in our ministries. Lord, help us to be everything you've called us to be. We ask it in Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. Well, first of all, I'm probably talking to people here today that are at least 60 to 100. The 30 percenters stayed home. It's wet outside. <laughs> Amen. So I want to put you, you know, in mind to the fact that you're already in a good place. You're here to hear the word of God. The Bible is the greatest treasure that man has ever been given. It is the living word of the eternal God. And this holy book contains the infinite wisdom of the all-knowing and omniscient creator. And I'll tell you what I believe. This book and God's word has creative power. Not just when God speaks it, but when you speak it as well. Because it's not just the vessel, it's the word. Because the Bible says this, Jesus said this, the words that I speak, they are spirit and they are life. The searching heart can find within the pages of this book the principles that when applied and lived by will create a life of peace and happiness and purpose and one that is overflowing with contentment. This book tells you how to find all of that. It also teaches us that like an iceberg, most of what exists in this world is hidden and cannot be seen. They tell me that nine-tenths of an iceberg is under the surface. You only see a tenth of it. That's like life. There's all kind of stuff you can't see. The tangible world that we can see is but a fraction of what really is. And to prove what I'm saying, have you ever seen an atom? Not have you seen atom, have you seen an atom? Have you ever seen an electron? No. Probably most of us have not ever seen viruses under a microscope. May have seen photos of them. Bacteria, our lives are affected by stuff we can't see every single day. Every single day. Amen. You, many of you would never have seen an angel. I say many of you because I know that some have. I've had angelic visitations. And no, I wouldn't own drugs either. <laughs> Wasn't taking hallucinogenics. And just like there are angels, there are demonic spirits. There's an unseen world that is just as real as the one that you live in. And the Word of God reveals the laws of the spirit dimension, which is that part you do not see, yet which is even more real and enduring than that which is visible. Amen. This visible world operates by a different set of laws. We, we're taught those in school. But when was the last time you had a professor teach you the laws of the spirit dimension? And this is important because... The laws of the spirit dimension are actually more powerful and indeed they actually transcend those of this earth, earthly or physical realm. And because the laws of the spirit dimension are of a higher order and supersede natural laws, they have 
great impact upon the life you live and affect nearly everything you experience, even in the natural world. They do. Somebody said, I don't believe in miracles. There's even a part of the church that, that agrees with a cessationist the philosophy or theology, and they don't believe miracles happen anymore. Well, the reverse of miracles happen every day, and that's demonic activity, pain, disease, war, genocide. And if you can believe in all of that, why wouldn't you believe that God's not at work? Amen. Why wouldn't you believe that God's doing some stuff out there? Amen. Actually, it is within this context where the overlapping of, of dimensions or worlds or kingdoms, as I phrased it last week, that is where miracles occur. Because you were raised in this world thinking that certain laws apply, and they do to this natural dimension. Then you come into the kingdom of God, as I've said, and I'm trying to bring us all back to the same place so I can teach what I want to teach that and need to teach. But then you get saved, and there's a new king and a new order, and, and there's a new kingdom with new laws and new rules, and, and you begin to feel your way through this new experience it's within that dimension of the overlapping of kingdoms that things like miracles occur. And there's all kind of stuff in the Bible, as I pointed out last week, that cannot be explained just using the natural laws of this physical world. They can't. There's no way they can. How about this one? Moses, speak to the rock. And this rock follows them around. Water gushes out of it in the desert. A rock that has a limited volume of space, even if it was hollow, because it is a certain geometric dimensions. It can only hold so many cubic, as it were, gallons of water if it were hollow. And yet it follows them for 40 years, which in itself is an astonishing miracle. Read what Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the rock that followed them was Christ. Here's a rock levitating in the desert, following Israel wherever they go, gushing out a river of water in the middle of the desert, turning the desert into an oasis. Well, I bet you've never seen a rock do that before. I certainly have not. So the very fact that it's levitating is a miracle. Then it's moving, that, that's pretty extraordinary. Amen. And then thirdly, it's producing more mass or quantity than it has the physical capability of holding within. That's a, all of these are absolute contradictions of the law of physical science. But there's another world that transcends this one, you see. And when the king steps in, his rules are superior to the rules of this fallen world. And when you come into the kingdom of God, there has to be a time and space given and effort made on your part to be able to understand all of this. Amen. And you see it in so many different places in the Bible. Death, for example, in this dimension is natural. The physical realm, when life ceases and the lungs no longer respire and, and the heart ceases to beat, it's over. Brain waves cease to function. That's end of it. Amen. According to the laws of this dimension, but ask Lazarus what happens whenever there's an overlapping of kingdoms. Because there's another king who operates with more authority than does the king of this fallen world. And when he says, Lazarus, come forth, what bound Lazarus in this limited world no longer apply. In that dimension. Even more, the Bible is given to us with a purpose. It's not just given to us to look at and to ponder its mysteries and be fascinated by things we can't explain, things that are curious and at the same time profound. The Bible is actually given with a specific intent on the part of God to teach us how we might align ourselves with these principles of this new kingdom that we may be in harmony with both God and creation. What do you think Jesus was doing on the Sermon of the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the pure in spirit. Blessed are peacemakers. All of that, that's an absolute contradiction of everything they believe, but he's teaching them the laws of a higher kingdom now. Amen. And we, we look at this. The Holy Scriptures, you see, are not 
given to us just as an oddity or curiosity. They're given to us that we might actually then change our thinking to be in harmony with both God and creation. And they're not about, as many people in religion teach, the scriptures are not about some control-hungry deity trying to tell his resentful minions how they have to live. It's not about some ego-driven supernatural deity who's sitting on heaven in heaven somewhere that wants you to jump through his, his hoops and jump over his hurdles just so he can get a kick out of that. That's not what the Bible's about. And if you were raised in religion instead of relationship, that's what you always heard. God's out to cramp your style. No, God's not out to cramp your style. He's out to release you from being a 30 to a 60 to become a hundred fold. He's trying to help you become everything you were meant to be, that he purposed for you to be. And the things that, that, that the Bible says are not good for you are not good for you in this regard. They will hold you back. They will keep you from being who you're supposed to be. We're presently in a study of the 7th and 8th chapter of the book of Romans, one of the most profound of all the sacred texts according to any theological source that you might study. And here are a few interesting facts about the book of Romans and the book uh, and, well, and the Bible in general. Just give me a few minutes. Romans contains 16 chapters, 433 verses, 7,111 words. And this is important because just as I mentioned last week, only six words from the book of Romans inflamed, set on fire in the heart of Martin Luther by God, the just shall live by faith, was enough to literally turn the world upside down. That's how powerful the word of God is. Six words started the Protestant Reformation, which is why we're here today. Amen. And here's my point. By my count, I'd leave 7,105 more words just in the book of Romans alone. That if God were to set them on fire in your heart, what would that do to you? Amen. It's like treasure waiting to be dug up, waiting to be found and understood. The entire Bible contains 66 books, 1,189 chapters, 31,101 verses. The Bible contains up to 807,361 words, depending upon which translation one uses. And because the Old Testament has an even number of verses, remember it has an even number of verses. If it, it has two middle verses rather than one in the same way that if you had 10 books and they were numbered 1 through 10, books number 5 and 6 would be the middle, right? If you had 11 books, then book number six would be the middle, and you had five on either side. Now, what's this? The mid, two middle verses of the Bible, what one might call the heart of the Bible, are this, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. The very core message hidden in the center of the Bible is this, that you were made and created to worship God. And when you worship God, it opens heaven, and the God you serve wants to pour benefits out into your life. Somebody in the building say amen. Say God is good. The Old Testament contains 39 books, 929 chapters, 23,214 verses, 622,771 words. Middle verse in the Old Testament is 2 Chronicles 2017. Listen to this. See if it sounds familiar. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves. Just turn to somebody and say, position yourself. That to me is the core message of the Bible. Position yourself. Stop fighting trying to make things happen on your own. You've got a power greater than you ever realized at your disposal. So position yourself and stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you. That's the message. God is with you. He's not against you. He's with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against him for the Lord is with you. This is the occasion when Jehoshaphat had to meet an army that was so huge, it stretched from that endless horizon all the way out into that one. And the Bible said they were like a little flock of sheep. And they were terrified. And they prayed and said, what do we do? And God said, don't worry. Stand still and see the salvation of God. Send your worshipers out and watch what happens. 
this battle is going to be fought by the Lord. And it was. He said, don't fear or be dismayed. And that's what God tells you when you are faced with, with problems that are bigger than you can possibly cope with. Amen. Position yourself and watch what God does in your life. Amen. God will make things happen. This speaks of the power of worship, which is why no matter what you're going through, you need to be in the house of God on Sunday worshiping the Lord. No matter what bad news came your way and what may be going on, when people seek God, God does things. This verse also, also speaks of God's commitment to us and his faithfulness to always deliver us when we trust in him. The New Testament contains 27 books, 260 chapters, 7,959 verses, 184,590 words. And listen to this. The middle verse of the New Testament is Acts 17, 17. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. That speaks of the purpose of the church, the reason we're still here. The word that I really like there is it says he reasoned with them. You see, the Bible is all about trying to persuade you to see things from God's perspective. This verse indicates that we have a different view of life than God has of life. Otherwise, no one would need to be reasoned with, right? But here is Paul who has been impacted by God that is now, notice who it says he's there, Reasoning with, he's reasoning with Jews and Gentile worshipers. You can be in church and be a worshiper and still need God to correct your thinking. Oh, I need a better amen than that. So it speaks to us about the mission of the church and our calling to share the good news with those around us, which therein we find the struggle, and that struggle is to communicate a message that God considers to be more reasonable than the message this world has embraced. Some people say, oh, that faith stuff, that God stuff, man, that, that's unreasonable. Now, that's not what God said. He said, the way you're thinking right now is what's unreasonable. Amen. And I love this. It's all about purpose. Like the Old Testament, the New Testament has an even number of chapters. So two chapters mark the middle of the New Testament as well. Do you know what they are? The book of Romans chapter 13 and 14, which talk to us about embracing the law of love and living at a different plane than the rest of society live at. The law of not using our liberty to harm one another, but to love and prefer one another. We need answers like this in today's world. I'm telling you, our world is in a mess. Can I hear an Amen. And nobody seems to know what to do to fix it. Nobody knows how. Amen. There's trouble in the economy, trouble in, in, in between countries and, and problems and distress and in homes and in society and in culture. And Lord, we need the answers of the Word of God. Kind of reminds me of this young married couple who had their first child. They'd waited for a child and they conceived a child and the child was born that was their pride and joy. However, this child didn't seem to be developing normally. Never said dad, dad, mama, any of the other things that kids learn to say as they develop the facilities, uh, the faculties rather of speech. And, and, and after several years, the parents were really alarmed and concerned and they started hiring the best speech therapists and doctors and psychiatrists, but all to no avail. The child simply refused to speak. And one evening when the child was seven, as the family ate dinner, the little boy looked up from his meal and said, my food is cold. And the dad burst into tears and turned to his son and asked, son, after all of these years and the money we've spent and the concern we've had, why have you waited so long to say something? We were going crazy. You've never said a word. And the little boy looked up and shrugged and said, well, up till now, everything's been okay. <laughs> we can't say that as human beings, that up till now, everything's okay. Up till now, everything's not okay. 
As you know, it's from the teachings of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 and 8 that I'm in this series on how to stop self-destructive behavior because this is at the heart of the message that Paul was reasoning with others about. The same Paul who was reasoning is the guy who wrote all of this in Romans. This is his message. And he describes in Romans 7 and 8, Eight types of self-destructive behavior, shame that I dealt with last week, self-destructive thoughts that I'll talk about today, compulsions, which as I've explained, is this thing every single one of us do, where we do stuff we know we shouldn't and blow up our own lives, shoot ourselves in the foot, right? Fear and despair, which is despondency, discouragement, and the extreme Depression, resentment, which is unforgiveness. You say, well, why do I resent that person? They've never even done me anything wrong. How can you say that's unforgiveness? Because it goes back way before you ever met this person. Jealousy, for example, stems from resentment. Somebody back there crippled you or said something that made you feel small. And now somebody else comes along and they're blessed and you can't even rejoice with them because you still resent what happened to you back there that's been debilitating and painful and you've lived with it all of these years? And there's pride, which is arrogance, and then low self-esteem. The good news is that for every one of these, I want you to know Romans 8.37 in the same passages where Paul is describing these problems, said, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I need somebody to say, I'm getting over my stuff. Would you do that? I'm more than a conqueror. More than a conqueror. So let's move on. We talked about shame. Let's talk about self-destructive thoughts. How do you get free from self-destructive thoughts? Because every single one of us think thoughts that are self-destructive. And we struggle with it. It's that fallen world we were indoctrinated, inculcated into and whose thoughts we were, as it were, made to embrace. Principles that we were taught were right. That fallen world that's inferior to the one of the new kingdom we've become a part of. Amen. We were socialized into this fallen world and made to accept as reality things that in this world are indeed real. But having come into the new kingdom, we carry that with us, and we have the potential to leave that behind. How do you overcome self-destructive thoughts? You set your mind to think spiritual thoughts rather than thoughts that are carnal. And when I say carnal, I'm not talking about sensual or immoral. I'm talking about negative or destructive thoughts of any kind. According to what Paul is talking about here, if you're thinking thoughts that are programming you to self-destruct, that is carnal. And what does carnal mean? Based upon the old life you used to live and the nature of the fallen man or woman you once were. Amen. Listen to what he says in Romans 8, 5, and 6. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature Think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. What is Paul saying? When you come into the kingdom of God, there's got to be a new way of thinking. Amen. Because every one of us were raised thinking negative thoughts, and it goes like this. Gee, in this economy, I wonder if I'll still have a job come New Year. They're talking about layoffs. wonder if it's going to be me. I'd love that new promotion, but I don't think I'm going to get it. Boss doesn't seem to like me very well. Ooh, that twinge, my God. What's that, cancer? Mama had it. Auntie had it. Grandma had it. And we talk ourselves right into problems 
that we're programming to cause to happen in our own life. And Paul said that that is not pleasing to God. When you're controlled by the Holy Spirit, you're supposed to think about things that please the Spirit. Do you think God is pleased whenever you're thinking, I'm going to lose my job? Do you think God is pleased when you're afraid your marriage is going to fall apart? Do you think that, you're, that God, your Savior is pleased when you go through life thinking, gee, I just know my kids are going to grow up and hate the church and be drug addicts and everything? No, that's not pleasing to the Lord. How do I know that? Because that's not what God wants to have happen in your life. It goes like this. The Bible says that Christ came that you might have life and may have it more abundantly. God will be pleased when his purposes are fulfilled in your life. And his will is that you have more abundant life. I mean shifting from the 30 percenter to the 60 and all the way up to the 100. Maximizing your potential to be who he created you to be. Because who does he get the most, most glory from? The person that is just a, a shell, a caricature of who he meant for them to be, or the person that's alive and vibrant and filled with purpose and a sense of destiny and anointed and being used by God. You know who he gets the most glory from. Amen. How do I know the, that the Lord is pleased? When we're blessed, simple. It says it in the Bible. The Lord takes pleasure in the prosperity of his servants. God is happy when you get promoted. Happy when your life is doing well. Amen. You say, but pastor, aren't you kind of preaching a little positive kind of thinking message this morning? Guess what? God is positive. You think God's negative like some of us? Gee, I wonder what's going to happen in my world. That's going to fall apart tomorrow. That sun I put out there to come up in the east, <laughs> it's going to burn out next week. I just know it is. That's not how God thinks. God believes that what he has done is going to be perpetrated or perpetuated, I should say, into the ages. He believes his goodness will continue. That's why the Bible says in Psalms, his goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I need somebody to say, I'm going to be blessed as long as I live here. I'm not waiting for any other shoe to drop. Not looking for bad stuff to happen. Get used to it, devil. You don't like my condition right now. You're going to hate it even more tomorrow. You don't like the way I'm smiling? Guess what's going to happen come next week? If this gives you a nervous breakdown, they're going to lock you up by the end of next week because God's going to bless me. Amen. It's a devil that thinks negative. Not God. Amen. So letting your old sinful nature, what's he talking about? And remember, he's talking to believers. What do you mean my old sinful nature? I thought that got buried with Christ. It did. But where does it still exist? In our programming, our thinking, letting that old negative nature, sinful nature, Control us. Doesn't please the Lord. The sinful nature thinks about these things. If you want to change behavioral patterns that are bad in your life, you have to change the way you think. You change your thoughts. Why? Thoughts lead to feelings and feelings lead to actions or decisions or behavior. And your behavior inevitably leads to outcomes. And bad decisions and bad behavior lead to bad outcomes. And good decisions and good behavior, wise choices lead to positive outcomes and consequences. Therefore, if you're experiencing outcomes or consequences that are unpleasant, it is simply the logical thing to do to change your thoughts. And they will in turn change the outcomes. Amen. 
that you're experiencing in your life. And this is what the Bible is so powerfully effective at doing. You read this book, and this book changes your view of the world, of you, of God, of everything around you. This book is incredible. I wish I had known when I was a young man the treasure that I have in this book. I don't know that I would have ever read anything else but the Bible. This is unbelievable. There's treasure on every page. Amen. You say, how do I go about changing the way I think? Colossians 3 and 2. Set. Everybody say that word. Set. Set your affections on things above, not on things of earth or on earth. That's the King James Version. Listen to the New King James. I love this. Set your mind on things above. You see, affections to us means our likes, and that's more an emotional thing. But what the word actually says in the original, it's not talking about your emotions. You set your mind, your thoughts. Why? Because your thoughts are what determine your emotions. Come on, help me out now. Amen. And so you set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Listen to the amplified version and set your minds and keep them set on what is above, the higher things, not on the things that are on the earth. I love that. Set your minds and keep them set. Turn to somebody near you and say, I'm going to keep my mind set on higher things. I'm not just going to set it, I'm going to keep it set. Because some of us fall back into that old rut so easily, don't we? We come to a service like this and we say, I'm going to start thinking the way that God wants me to think. And I'm going to think big and I'm going to believe God and I'm going to have faith because that's the essence of faith. It's what you think. Faith is not emotional. Faith is literally what you decide to think. Somebody else says, I don't think God can fix that, that thing. I don't think God can heal cancer. I think he can. I think that by his stripes I am healed. Hallelujah. I think the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I think goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I'm not going to end up somewhere struggling in my elderly years. God's good to me. His commitment spans the course of my life and stretches on into eternity. It's not limited to just a segment of the life that I live here. Amen. So you set your minds and you keep them set on things that are above. It's your thinking. And to make it more clear, look at Colossians 3.2 in the New Living Translation. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Does that mean think of walls of jasper and gates of pearl and river of life and all of that and uh, us floating around on clouds playing harps? That's not what it means when it says think about the things of heaven. And don't think about things on earth and that trees, you know, birds, grass, flowers. That's not what that's saying. It's talking about the spiritual application of the two. Think about the things of the heavenly dimension, not the things of the earthly sphere. I need a better amen right there. Amen. So where's your thinking at? Is it still at the earthly plane or have you allowed the word of God to elevate your thinking to the next level? Because clearly when Paul is saying set your affections or set your mind, he's really talking about thinking as that verse right there clearly emphasizes. Amen. And in the Greek, the phrase set your affections literally means to exercise your mind. Exercise is hard. As someone who used to go to the gym six days a week, two hours a day for many, many years until all of these accidents were now, that's not possible anymore like I used to. I want to tell you something, amen, that exercise is challenging. That's why you find all of these people every year, they do the same thing. New Year's Eve, what are your goals, your resolutions? I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to lose this tub of Lord I'm carrying around here. I'm not talking about your husband either, amen. 
talking about your own personal supply. You know what I mean? You go to the gym, you have to stand in line after New Year's to get a machine. Wait until February, the middle of February, you could shoot a shotgun and not heal, hit anybody in the place. Because exercise is hard. It requires discipline. And this is what Paul is saying in the Greek. The phrase set your affections or set your thoughts literally means to exercise your minds. It's a struggle. And do you know the only kind of exercise that's really doing you any good is exercise where there's resistance involved. That means if you can lift it easily, it's probably not helping you. I get amused at all of these silly commercials, five-minute abs. Yeah, right. Somebody said, I've got abs that are just hidden under a lot of stuff. Amen. There's no such thing as five-minute abs. It requires exercise. Some of us have decided bread baskets are okay. Amen. Don't laugh. We've all worked hard to get here. Amen. That's a lot of money involved in this. I've been devoted, and so have you. Come on, help me. Amen. You see, you don't sit there and say to yourself, I'm going to resist this. I'm not going to think like this. I'm resisting this thought, this negativity. And again, I just want to say it because some might say, Pastor, is this really the message of the Bible? Isn't that positive thinking? I want to say again, God wants you to be everything he meant for you to be. God is not negative. It is the very message of the Bible. That God wants you to stop being a fraction of who you were intended to be and become everything you were meant to be. That's the empowerment of the Bible and what the gospel message is all about. It wasn't just to save you from hell. It's that's a big mistake religion has made. It makes everything be seen in polarized terms. Heaven, hell. You don't get saved, you're going to hell. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God for it. Amen. You get saved, you're going to heaven. We don't give anybody anything to do in between. We don't help them to improve their lives. That's, that's the problem in religion. And I want to tell you, the worst thing you can do in life is start focusing on the negatives in your life because you know what happens? It makes them bigger. Makes them get bigger. I'll never forget some years ago. Was, was anybody here in the Wednesday night series? I don't even know if we have anybody in the church that was a member then except maybe Tony at, at the time and maybe a few others that I'm just not spotting up here because the lights are so bright. But when I, not long after I first came here, this is a long time ago, baby. 27 years ago, probably, when I taught the series, because I've been here going on 29 years now, and I was teaching from Galatians, where Paul is talking about people spying out your liberty, and, and that the, I was talking about the way to change is not focus on the problem, but focus on the positives. And to illustrate my message, I used something that, that I, I've mentioned it here before. You might remember it. I love pralines and cream ice cream. I love pralines. They are the manna that fell in Louisiana that we have shared with the rest of the, the world. Israel had the manna, the little white manna in the desert. We had pralines. You mix that in bluebell ice cream with streaks, thick streaks of caramel laced in it. I'm about talking tongues right now. I also like root beer. Don't drink it much, but you put the two together and it is amazing. Put pralines and cream, ice cream in a blender and then fill it up with root beer and turn that blender on and make what they call a freeze. That is so good, you'll wake up in the hospital next week. Asking for more. Amen. That will fix your marriage. It will fix your finances. It don't really fix it. You just don't care about it anymore. It's, it's so good. 
I've spent years traveling this nation doing the work of an evangelist. And every city we would go in, I would always look for the Baskin and Robbins. And I would go and I would ask them to make me a freeze. And inevitably, they'd never heard of a pralines and cream root beer freeze. And i say, what? And i say, well, just there'll be a little bit left inside the, the container when you fix mine. Just taste it. I have addicted pralines and cream, or, or rather, Baskin and Robbins employees to pralines and cream root beer freezes all over the nation. I wouldn't be surprised they don't have their own support groups right now trying to get free from that stuff. It is addictive. And I was preaching that night from Galatians, don't focus on the problem. And I'm saying you, I, I described the pralines and cream root beer freeze and talked about how good it is. And I said, you can't do it though. Don't go. It will put weight a moment on the lips forever on the hips and all that kind of stuff. And, and I'm, I'm saying, don't go, don't go, don't go. Don't go. It's not good for you. And the next day I intentionally went to the Baskin and Robbins right by the interstate. And I said, tell me what happened last night about 9 o'clock. And they said it was the most amazing thing. We had this whole flood of people come in at the same time. They all wanted the same thing. I said, what was that? Pralines and cream, root beer, freezes. I'm not making that up. That really happened. Because the more you focus on what you're not supposed to do, the more it becomes a desire that you can't get away from. If you want to correct bad behavior, the way to correct it is not focus on it. It's focus on the alternative. Somebody in the building say hallelujah. Or another way to say it is don't persist the problem or don't resist the problem will persist. If you resist, it will persist. It's like watching TV. If you don't like what's on, change the channel. Don't just sit there saying, I don't want to watch this. I hate this program. This is boring. This is dull. Change the channel. This is what Paul is saying when he says, set your affections or your thoughts you get to control the station you listen to. Hello. That's the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you. You can change the channel. I've got a word for somebody in this place today. You don't have to live like you're living any longer. God's going to bless you and set you free. The power of the gospel changes your life. Amen. Set your mind. Change the channel. And as we go through this, I've got to next week, my, and my time is gone. Gee, I wish I had <laughs> weeks before Christmas, but it's just around the corner. And so some of this I'll flesh out more thoroughly next year. But as we move into this thing called the holiday season, we're still remembering that we're supposed to be living the extraordinarily blessed life. Well, I've just told you why many of us don't. Because we're thinking self-defeating thoughts. And then we try to tell ourselves, come on, snap out of that. Quit that. Think. You don't want to think that anymore. Stop thinking about cancer. I'm not going to think about cancer. I'm not going to think about cancer. I'm not going to think about, oh, that's what you're doing right now while you're saying it. And we wire or program the computer. And it really is difficult to break free from that because you've heard me say this before too, but it needs, needs to be said again. Remember the old movie, How Stella Got Her Groove Back? When you think certain thoughts for years and years, it really is analogous to another groove on your brain or another wrinkle or whatever. It's like, it's like electrical wiring because your brain literally operates like a, a computer does. It's more powerful than any computer they've ever devised. But it operates on a, an electrical circuit that is amazingly, and, and current that is amazingly created by chemicals in your brain and hormones that God put there. That to me is absolutely fascinating. 
And when you think negative thoughts, you know what you're doing? You're wiring your whole structure, your cognitive logical structure. You're wiring it to think negative. And then whenever you try to change and you begin to program your thinking with the Word of God, you start putting in tiny little wires where there are huge cables that are there because these cables have been getting bigger for years, however old you are is how long you've been thinking that stuff. Or since the last tragedy that bent you in that direction or betrayal or whatever it may be. And now then you're laying these little bitty filaments of wires. And of course, the first time something bad happens, you know what goes on? It jumps back to that old circuitry. And you have, to, and we recidivate. And what you have to do is continue to work and say, I'm going to think positive. But I've just told you, you can't say, I'm not going to think negative because that doesn't work. I'm not going to get cancer. I'm not going to lose my job. 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 And what you end up doing is you program yourself to self-destruct. That's what you're focusing on. What you actually have to say is you have to set your affections on heavenly thinking. Somebody in the building say hallelujah. And in essence, I'm telling you, these are the core problems that underline every problem we have in life. When you see saints that don't want to tithe, you know why? They're still thinking the old way. Two plus two equals four. 100% is more than 90%. I can't give God 10%. That will leave me with less. And they fail to understand, as I said last Sunday, that they're now in a kingdom with superior authority and principles and rules that says, yes, you will do more with 90% because I'm going to open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that you can't receive. Amen. And not only that, I'm going to rebuke the devourer for your sake. We had a function last night with the communion ministry, and Austin Griffin, his, his wife, Joy, they're sweet people. They come to the 730 service, and they're originally from Jamaica, and they've been here many years, and he's a businessman, and they're going leaving tomorrow to go to Jamaica to celebrate their anniversary, and he had been to the bank and got some money and put it in his wallet and put it in his coat, and when they arrived at the place last night, he took his coat off the hook in the back of the car, and when he was putting it on, the wallet fell out on the ground at the hotel, Hilton Garden Inn in Pearland. Most of you are thinking exactly what I'm thinking, no more wallet. There was a major radio station in one of our larger cities at one time, just at a lark. They bought a bunch of wallets, put some money in all of them, and some, and some identification, including addresses, so that people, if they found the wallet, could return it. And they waited, and they, they put them all over the city and had people posted to watch what happened. People would pick up the wallet. They never heard from anybody except just a, a, a couple of people. Several of them returned the wallets empty. <laughs> And one guy took everything out of the new wallet, put it, his, his stuff into the new wallet, and sent them the, his old wallet. But you know what happened last night? We're right in the middle of the function, and there's an announcement. Is Austin Griffin here? Your wallet has been found. Every credit card was still in it. Every dollar was still in it. God will rebuke the devourer for your sake. Enemy can't touch your stuff. Oh, I felt the anointing when I said that. Enemy can't touch your stuff. It shall not come nigh thee. Somebody in the building say hallelujah. A thousand shall fall at your right hand. Or at your side. Ten thousand at your right hand. It will not come near your dwelling. Say, it can't come near my dwelling. Can't come near me. Stand all over the building. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Change your thinking. That's the process of discipleship, and it lasts a lifetime.